0: Good morning! you have your Bible with you this morning. Hopefully you do. Go ahead, and open them up to the Gospel of Luke chapter 6. If you need to borrow a Bible, there's some Bibles underneath, some of the chairs around you. Feel free to reach down and grab one of those. Last week, uh, we wrapped up our study of chapter 5. Uh, so this morning, we're going to jump into the beginning of chapter 6 as we continue to make our way, you know, systematically through this Gospel account, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Once you've found your way to chapter 6, I'd like to invite you to rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and His Word. I'm going to read through our text in my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. Uh, If you're reading from a different translation, I just want to encourage you, uh, do your best to follow along uh, in your own Bible. Our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. The title of our study is going to be Honoring the Sabbath. Honoring the Sabbath. The Sabbath. Luke continues his narrative with the following in verse one. Now it happened on the second Sabbath after the first that he went through the grain fields and his disciples plucked the heads of grain and ate them, rubbing them in their hands. And some of the Pharisees said to them, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? But Jesus answering them said, have you not even read this? What David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How when he how he went into the house of God, took and ate of the showbread, and also gave some of those some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he said to them, "The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath." Verse six. Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. But they were filled with rage and disgust with one another what they might do to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather in this place to worship you, Lord, and to really yield ourselves to you and your word. And Lord, we do invite your Holy Spirit just to uh, lead and guide us. We thank you that your word promises us that your spirit will lead us into all truth, will remind us of the things that you've said. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you just to do a work in our hearts and in our lives. Lead us as we go through this text, where we understand your truth, that you're speaking to the people in that day and age, but we also want to understand the truth that you'd have for us, that we might make application to our own lives, Lord, that we wouldn't just come here and and learn a, a, a cool Bible study or some interesting information. Lord, we want to spend time with you. We want to hear from you. We want to leave this place having been molded and, and shaped more and more into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we asked Holy Spirit, do a work in us and through us this morning And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Here in the first uh, opening verses of our text, we see Jesus and his disciples, they're passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Now, Luke mentions that this is the second Sabbath after the first, probably to help distinguish the events from what had happened on a previous Sabbath. Earlier in our study of the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 4, we covered an event that took place on a particular Sabbath where Jesus healed a man of an unclean spirit while at a local synagogue. This was a a separate Sabbath from that one. And the second record of Jesus doing something on the Sabbath, well, that was considered an offense. For healing on the Sabbath was considered an offense as we'll see in the second half of our text here this morning. So, as Jesus and his disciples were traveling along some grain fields on the Sabbath, they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they accused them of breaking the law. Now, some may think that the law that they were breaking was perhaps stealing because they were eating from someone else's grain fields. But this was actually permitted under Mosaic law. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, uh, verses 24 and 25, it states that when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. And so the law actually allowed for someone to pass through and to partake of the fruits of the, vi- of the vine and the grain of the field, provided that they weren't gathering things into a container or that they weren't harvesting it with a, a sickle. They weren't bringing a tool in there and, and basically working the land. And so this was allowed. It was permitted. It kind of reminds me, if you're familiar, if you've been in Iwakuni for any uh, amount of time, they have uh, a number of different fruit picking places. You can go and you can pick mecons, You can go pick apples. And you pay one price to get in. You can eat and pick and do whatever you want. uh, But if you want to take any out with you in a container, well, then you got to pay extra. It it, kind of has that kind of mentality. You can go in, take whatever you want. But if you're going to try and take, you know, with you, you got to pay. That, that's not allowed. So this we see, um, uh, as long as you weren't gathering the items and storing them for later comp- uh, consumption, it was okay to take a little something from a field. So what the disciples were doing was perfectly legal in that sense, because they they simply plucked a few heads of grain while they were passing through. They weren't stockpiling grain for later, okay? They, they weren't harvesting the grain with a sickle, And so what did the disciples do to make the Pharisees accuse them of breaking the law? Well, it wasn't so much what they did as much as it was when they did it. The Pharisees accused them of breaking the law because the disciples did what they did on the Sabbath. And I'd like to take just a few moments here before we continue in our text to explain some matters concerning the Sabbath, just in case you're not familiar with it, okay? Uh, So we're going to do a little overview, some Old Testament history here regarding the Sabbath. The word Sabbath, okay, it literally means rest, okay? It is a cessation from labor, and it actually first occurs in the scriptures in Exodus chapter 16, verse 23, Exodus sixteen twenty three states, then he said to them, this is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today and boil what you will boil and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept until morning. Now the context of this, these words uh, they were being spoken by Moses in connection to the collection of the manna by the Israelites during the Exodus. They were to collect enough manna for each day for five days. So each day you just go and you collect enough for that one day. You don't get extra. You just go out and, and you gather a day's worth of food and that's it. And you do that for five days. But on the sixth day, they were called to collect a double Portion. When the seventh day came, the Lord did not provide the manna as before, and they were to use what was gathered on the sixth day to sustain them uh, and leave the seventh day as a day of rest. So although the first mention of the word Sabbath is in Exodus, the institution of the day of rest is much older. It's actually founded by the Lord at the completion of creation way back in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter two, verses two and three says, And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. And so we see after completing all of creation, God took a day of rest. The word rest indicates a stoppage of, of work. Okay. I don't think God was in need of a day of rest for himself as if he was drained of his power after creating the world. It wasn't like, oh my goodness, to six days, it just totally was so hard for me to do that. And I need a day off. You know, that's not, that's not the idea at all. Okay. God is all powerful. He's omnipotent. Okay. He doesn't get tired uh, or his power isn't drained from him. So that's not the idea. Why did God rest? if it wasn't because he was fatigued or he was lacking in power? Well, the scripture indicates that God rested on the seventh day for his people. Exodus 31, verses 16 and 17 says, Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed The Sabbath was established to serve as a sign and they were to observe it as a part of a covenant with God. It was an acknowledgement of his creation of them and an acknowledgement of his choosing of them as a special people. Now, keeping the Sabbath, it became part of the Ten Commandments. You guys are familiar with the Ten Commandments, I'm sure. It's the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, verses 8 and 11 states, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore... The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So, not only was the Sabbath meant to be a day of rest, but as indicated in the fourth commandment, it was also a day that was blessed and the Lord hallowed it and he instructed the Israelites to keep it holy. Now, the word hallowed and the word holy, they both mean to be set apart unto the Lord, uh, to be treated as Uh, special, as holy. The Sabbath was set apart as a day that was holy to the Lord. And it became not only a day of rest, but a special day of worship unto the Lord. There were special offerings that were given on the Sabbath. Leviticus 23 verse 3 tells us that the Sabbath was a holy convocation. It was an assembly of gathering uh, of sorts for religious purposes. And so we see here the purpose of the Sabbath was actually twofold, and we'll note that right off the bat here, our first main point, okay? The Sabbath was a day of rest as well as a day of worship, okay? A day of rest and a day of worship. Understand the Sabbath? Let's get back to our account now. So what did the disciples do that was unlawful to do on the Sabbath? Scripture stated that the Sabbath was to be a day of rest and that no work was to be done on the Sabbath. The difficulty of keeping this law came down to the definition of what constitutes work, okay? Scripture specifically mentions a few things that were forbidden on the Sabbath. I won't pull up all the scripture references, but I'll let you know what they are. In Jeremiah uh, 17 verses 21 and 22, we read about how carrying Heavy burdens was prohibited on the Sabbath. Exodus mentions kindling fire as being prohibited on the Sabbath. It also alludes to not doing work during the plowing and harvesting seasons uh, on the Sabbaths. Exodus 35, verse 3. Uh, Exodus also mentions not doing any cooking on the Sabbath. Exodus 16, 23. Uh, In Nehemiah, the selling of goods was prohibited on the Sabbath. Nehemiah 13, verse 15 Gathering items such as manna and sticks was prohibited on the Sabbath as well, Numbers 15, verse 32. But really, outside of these specifically mentioned items, there's nothing else described as being prohibited from happening on the Sabbath. Because there weren't a lot of specifics regarding what constituted work, the Pharisees, the scribes, the religious elite, okay, the rabbis of the day, they took it upon themselves to define what constituted work. And the oral tradition that was passed down eventually was collected into writings that's called the Mishnah. You never may have, may have heard of the Mishnah, okay? The rabbinical teachings of the Mishnah eventually calculated that there were 39 different categories of what constituted work and I actually have them all on a slide here, okay? And so the 39 categories of work, planting, plowing, reaping, gathering, threshing, winnowing, sorting, grinding, sifting, kneading, cooking, shearing, scouring, combing, dyeing, spinning, warping, making loops, weaving, separating threads, tying, untying, sewing, tearing, trapping, slaughtering, skinning, curing, Smoothing, scoring, measured cutting, and I thought that's interesting. So if you don't measure, go ahead and cut away. But if you're going to measure, can't do that. Uh, writing, erasing, building, demolition, extinguishing fire, igniting fire, finishing, putting a finishing touch on something, or moving from one's domain. Those are the 39 categories that they developed from the Mishnah, from the rabbinical teachings uh, that had been passed down, and each category was actually further defined, and more regulations were added. For instance, planting, according to the Mishnah, was defined as the promotion of plant growth. Not only planting is included in this category, other other activities that promote plant growth are also prohibited. So this would include watering, fertilizing, planting seeds, or planting grown plants. If you kind of repotted something, that would be considered work. And so we think, oh, okay, I, I can see how that is connected to planting, uh, but it gets worse. Okay? Plowing was defined as promotion of substrate and readiness for plant growth, whether it be soil or water, hydroponics, etc. Okay? And so included in this prohibition is any preparation or improvement of land for agricultural use. This includes dragging chair legs in soft soil, thereby unintentionally making furrows, pouring water on arable land that's not saturated. Making a hole in the soil would provide protection for a seed placed there from rain and runoff. Even if no seed is ever placed there, the soil is now enhanced for the process of planting, so that would be constituted as work on the Sabbath. Pretty crazy, huh? So making a hole in the ground or dragging your lawn chair in the dirt, that constituted work cannot be done on the Sabbath. Reaping was defined as severing a plant from its source of growth. Removing all or part of a plant from its source of growth is uh, what we would, they defined as reaping. And so because of that, Rabbinically, it is forbidden to climb a tree on the Sabbath for fear that this may lead to one breaking off a branch, and then you would be therefore reaping, uh, breaking off a plant from its source, uh, and so then you would be guilty of breaking the Sabbath law. So, it's also forbidden rabbinically to ride an animal on the Sabbath, as one may unthinkably detach a stick to hit the animal with. And so, it's incredible to think that riding an animal is restricted. You can't do that. Well, why? Well, because that falls into reaping. It's like, really? Reaping and riding an animal, those are the same thing? It, but it, it only gets crazier and crazier. Today, if you actually go to Israel, and I would encourage you, if you ever had the opportunity to go on a trip to Israel, take it. It's amazing. Uh, Your Bible just comes to life before your eyes. It was an incredible trip. I had the opportunity to go once, and if the Lord would allow again, we'd go again. It was awesome. But if you go to Israel today, Jewish hotels, they have Sabbath elevators because pushing a button on an elevator would constitute work because as you push the button, you're igniting a fire because you're making an electrical connection. And so thus you would be breaking the Sabbath law by you would be working. So you go to a hotel on the Sabbath, they have a Sabbath elevator where you get on and it opens up at every single floor uh, and so that you don't have to press the button. And the funny thing is is that they have another elevator right next to it, and that's the one for all the heathens and Gentiles to take. So you can go there and just say, I'm going to the eighth floor, and you can push it. Uh, but the Orthodox people, it's, nope, it's the Sabbath. We're going to just sit here and wait for each and every door to open. Pretty crazy. So, according to the Pharisees, the disciples were guilty of breaking the Sabbath law because by plucking grain okay, and winnowing it, you know, rubbing it in their hands, and then eating it, they have been violated at least three categories of work, reaping, threshing, and winnowing. And so these Pharisees, they had, had taken a special day of rest, a, a special day of worship, and they had turned it into a heavy burden to bear. And in their pursuit of determining the exact letter of the law, the Pharisees missed out on the spirit of the law. The Sabbath was a day of rest, not a day of rules and, and rituals and, and regulations. Okay? Remember what Second Corinthians chapter 3 tells us. It tells us that the letter of the law kills, but the Spirit gives life. Well, how did Jesus respond to the accusations that the Pharisees made? Let's read verses three and four. But Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read this? What David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he went into the house of God, took and ate the showbread, and also gave some to those with him, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. Jesus responded by reminding the Pharisees of what David and his men did when they were going into hiding from King Saul. You can read about that in your own Bible in First Samuel chapter twenty-one. David and his men. They came to a city of priests and they sought out bread to eat for their journey. The priest Ahimelech informed David that they didn't have any common bread. They only had the holy bread, the show bread that was only supposed to be for the priests. However, Ahimelech, the priest, he declared to David that as long as the men were ceremonially clean and they had kept themselves from women that they could go ahead and eat of the bread. And so, after David assured the priest that his men were indeed clean, the holy bread was given to David and his men, they partook. Now, some say that Jesus used this example to show, well, that it's okay. It was okay for the disciples to break the Sabbath law because David broke the law. Listen, that would be a wrong conclusion. Okay? That's not what happened. Because okay? that would mean that David and the disciples were guilty of breaking the law. But David was never held responsible for such. And Jesus actually says in Matthew's parallel account of this text in Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, that the disciples were guiltless. Okay? They had no guilt whatsoever. They weren't guilty of breaking the law. And so why use this example? I believe it was to show the Pharisees that David and the priest, they didn't adhere to the exact letter of the law, but they adhered to the spirit of the law. And in so doing, they were not in violation of the law, but in fulfillment of it. You see, the letter of the law was that the bread was holy, that it was set apart for the priest. Listen, if the priest wanted to give his bread to help someone in need, especially someone that was, you know, ceremonially clean, there wasn't anything wrong with that. Romans chapter 13, verse 10 tells us love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Galatians chapter 5 teaches us that all the law is fulfilled in one word, okay? Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see, the law is fulfilled in love. By showing care for David and his men, and by ensuring that they were ceremonially clean, Ahimelech did not violate the law. He fulfilled it. Thus, David was not held accountable for eating the showbread given to him and his men. Uh, from uh, He wasn't held accountable for it, okay? uh, even though he ate it and his men ate it. And so this example goes to show that, that love and, and compassion while meeting human need is is more important than observing ceremonial rituals and and traditions. The disciples, they were guiltless in their eating of the grain because their human need for sustenance trumped any tradition that the Pharisees constituted as work. And Jesus, in his defense of the actions of his disciples, he does a very important thing when it comes to defending their actions. I want you to note this. He took them to the scriptures. Jesus said, have you not even read this? What David said. Did. Jesus went to the scripture to give a reason for why he was doing what he was doing. And I believe this is an example that we all ought to look to follow. We need to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have within us. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, But to, to sanctify the Lord God in our hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Not only are we to be able to give a defense to all who ask us about our hope in Christ, but I think it's important to be able to point to Scripture and to have a biblical reason for the things that we do. You know, if someone asks you why you live your life the way that you do, could you take them to the Scriptures? Could you show them lovingly with meekness and fear? Okay, we're not trying to, you know, win arguments, okay? but to win people over uh, in love, could you take them to the scriptures and tell them, show them why you do what you do? This is what Jesus did. The Pharisees brought accusations against his disciples. Jesus defended them by taking the Pharisees to the scriptures. And we should be able to do the same. Let's read our text next verse, excuse me, to see how Jesus concluded the matter in verse 5. He said to them, The Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus concluded with a bold declaration of his authority. He proclaimed that the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now, this title, Son of Man, is one that Luke's already shown Jesus to use in reference to himself. He used it when healing the paralytic uh, that was lowered down before him by four of his friends. Luke actually uses this title 26 times in his gospel account in reference to Jesus. So we're going to hear this more and more as we continue to make our way through the gospel of Luke. Now, we've already noted before in chapter 4 when we looked at this, how the title Son of Man was a messianic title. It was a title reserved for the one who would come and fulfill the Old Testament prophecies concerning the line of David and God's kingdom. And so as the Son of Man, as the Messiah, as God in the flesh, Jesus had every right to present himself as Lord of the Sabbath. What Jesus is basically saying in this statement is that he made the Sabbath and is therefore sovereign over it. We are told in John chapter 1 verse 3 that all things were made through him. Referring to Jesus, the word that became flesh. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. That means that Jesus made the Sabbath. Jesus never did anything that violated the Sabbath as it was first intended. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, including the Sabbath. Listen, when he completed his work upon the cross, he fulfilled every part of the law. And so today, listen. We're not held responsible for keeping the Sabbath. We're not required to gather together on a particular day because it's more holy than any other day. We have the freedom to meet any day in fellowship and in worship. Nonetheless, even though we're no longer required to keep the Sabbath, I do think that we ought to purpose in our heart to have a day that we allow for ourselves to find physical rest. Okay. I also believe that the scriptures instruct us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. For us as a body, okay, we have set aside Sunday morning and Wednesday night as opportunities for the assembling of the body together for fellowship and worship. Okay? So though we do not keep the Sabbath, we do find a principle in setting aside time to find rest and setting aside time to gather together and worship. Again, for us as a church, we do it on Sunday. If you think about it, some people think Sunday's the Sabbath. It's not Saturday is the Sabbath, actually, okay? Your Seventh day Adventists they worship on Saturday because that's the Sabbath, and they want to honor the Sabbath, okay? We worship on Sunday because it's the first day of the week, and that is the day that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, okay? And so we commemorate his resurrection by gathering together the first day of the week on Sunday, okay? So, and, and that's the day that we've set aside. We've said, hey, you know what? Let's all get together on Sunday. It's not more holy than any other day, okay? It's not more special than any other day, uh, you can meet with God on Sunday just as easily as you can meet with Him on Thursday. Uh, so we need to make sure that we understand that. Okay, we must remember something very important about our relationship with the Lord. Our rest is not in a particular day of the week. Okay, our rest is not in a day of the week, but it is in the Lord Himself. He is available to us each and every single day. Jesus Christ is not just Lord of the Sabbath but also he is our Sabbath, okay? He is our rest. He is our peace. We are exhorted to come to him and find rest. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 describes Jesus as our peace. You see, as believers in Jesus Christ, we no longer have to work for our good standing before the Lord. We don't need to work for our salvation. Salvation does not come through works, but in resting in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4 teaches us, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. You see, the writer of Hebrews, he didn't want the people of God to make the same mistakes their father had made in trying to earn their stance before God through their works. Our rest is in the completed work of Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary. Well, you can imagine how well the Pharisees received Jesus' claim to being Lord of the Sabbath. We're not told, but um, we can assume that it was not very good uh, based upon what we're going to read next. So in our next verses, we're going to see how Jesus follows up his declaration of his authority with a demonstration of it. Let's read the next two verses, verse 6 and 7. It says, Now it happened on another Sabbath also that he entered the synagogue and taught. And a man was there whose right hand was withered, So the scribes and Pharisees watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, that they might find an accusation against him. We'll stop right there. In these verses, we see again the Pharisees trying to pit Jesus against the Sabbath and their distorted interpretation of what it meant to keep the Sabbath, to honor the Sabbath. Jesus, as was his custom, he made his way to the local synagogue on the Sabbath. He was teaching. This was a different Sabbath than the one that we just covered. There in attendance was a man with a withered hand. A, a withered hand actually depicts an idea of something lacking natural juices. Someone suffering from a withered hand would not be able to uh, stretch out their limb, and for the most part, be unable to move their hand from about their elbow down and kind of be like stuck in like this. You wouldn't be able to extend it, uh, their arm or reach out or anything like that, in their hand and really their forearm as well. Um, And so one of the things that really stands out to me here, amazes me really, is that the Pharisees, they watched Jesus closely to see whether or not he would heal the man. And I think it's interesting because there seems to be little to no doubt whatsoever to the ability of Jesus to perform such a miracle. The question is whether or not he will do it at this time. And I find that interesting. Maybe you do as well. Here they have a man that can perform the miraculous through healing, and that doesn't seem to make any difference to them. Their focus is trying to trap him into breaking their own oral traditions, their own law. You know, it's like, wait a second, you you know this guy has the ability to do the miraculous, and yet you're focused upon trying to trap him into breaking your oral tradition? Like, shouldn't you be thinking, wow, this guy can do the miraculous, this guy can do the supernatural, maybe we should be listening to this guy. But that's not the focus at all. I just find that it very interesting. Okay? Matthew's account of this event tells us that in addition to their watchful eye upon him, the Pharisees also presented Jesus with a question. They themselves came to him first and they said, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Asking Jesus, is it okay for, us, for someone to heal on the Sabbath? Now, according to their interpretation and their oral law, it was prohibited to heal on the Sabbath, for healing was considered to require work. So, it would break the Sabbath. According to their man made traditions, one can work uh, on the Sabbath to save life, but not to heal, which I found interesting. As part of my r- research and study, I found that it, if someone, uh, they gave an example, if someone was deeply wounded, and was bleeding all over the place, you'd be, be permitted to put a tourniquet upon the person to stop the bleeding, but you wouldn't be able to put any gauze or bandages upon the wound, nor any sort of ointment, because that would aid in the process of healing, and healing is not prohibited on, or not allowed on the Sabbath. And so you could save the life, but you couldn't do anything to, to promote healing. And I thought, that is so ridiculous. That is so just insane, okay? We're told the purpose of why they asked the question. It wasn't because they cared about this man who had a withered hand. He was just a pawn in their scheme. No, the reason they asked Jesus is because they thought they could trap him, and they can accuse him of breaking their laws regarding the Sabbath. Their motivation was to bring an accusation against Jesus. They were not interested in finding out the truth. They already made up their mind as to what was acceptable on the Sabbath, so why would they ask? Is it lawful. You already have your own answer. They were just trying to catch him in a trap. You know, have you ever come across people like that before? Uh, Maybe you have some people in your life that are like that. People who come to you with questions about Jesus, questions about your faith, who have absolutely no interest in hearing the answer that you give. They're simply just trying to bring an attack against Jesus or to bring an attack against you and your faith. I I know some people like that. I have some acquaintances from... uh, uh, growing up uh and and we need to make sure because there are people like that uh, that love nothing more than to catch an ill-prepared believer off guard with some tricky question that they can use to trap them to attack jesus to attack their faith because there are people like that we need to make sure that we're following through with the exhortation that paul gave to timothy regarding similar questions about empty chatter Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he said, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Listen, church family, we need to be good students of the word of God. We need to know what the word of God says. Okay? When someone comes and they have these challenging questions, we need to be able to give a, a solid biblical answer. We need to be able to answer the skeptics, the naysayers, and we need to be able to do so honestly and unashamedly. Like we already mentioned, we need to be able to give a defense to everyone who asks us about the hope that we have in Christ. Back to our account, verse 8 and 9, it says, But he knew their thoughts and said to the man who had the withered hand, Arise and stand here. And he arose and stood. Then Jesus said to them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? Jesus, he knew their thoughts. He knew that the scribes and Pharisees' whole motivation was to simply try and trap him, and so he came up with a great response. Jesus asked the man with the withered hand to arise and stand, and then he directed a question towards the scribes and the Pharisees asking, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? to save life or to destroy? You see, Jesus upped the ante in response to their own questioning. They had asked if it was lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Jesus goes beyond just the idea of healing, and he raises it to a matter of doing good or evil, of saving life or destroying life. Jesus' question is a very easy one to answer. Okay? Listen, it's always lawful to do good on the Sabbath and every other day. Okay? And it's never lawful to do evil on the Sabbath, or nor any other day for that matter. It's always lawful to save a life, it's never lawful to willfully destroy and take a life. The day doesn't change those matters, right? In Matthew's account, he even raises the stakes higher as he brings against the Pharisees some of their own man-made traditions and exceptions to the rules. According to their own rules and rituals, it was permissible to lift out a sheep from a pit if it fell into one on the Sabbath. And so even though lifting the sheep would constitute bearing a heavy burden, they allowed for an exception from the law for such an instance. And Jesus asked in Matthew's account of how much more value then is a man than a sheep? Man being made in the likeness and in the image of God, listen, is far superior than the sheep. You guys make special allowance. If your sheep falls in the pit, you're going to go ahead and help it and lift it out. But this man who needs help, you will not allow him to be helped. It doesn't make sense. If it's okay to help an animal in need, it certainly ought to be okay to help a man in need. Jesus is exposing their own hypocrisy. He's bringing to light the motive behind their hearts. You see, they didn't care about this man with the withered hand. All they really wanted to do was to trap, try and trap Jesus in a catch-22 situation where no matter what he did, he would be incriminating himself. But Jesus turns the tables on them. Now they are the ones in the trap. They are the ones forced to incriminate themselves. Galatians actually teaches us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Jesus has brought... This situation right back upon themselves. They sowed ill will and an attitude of condemnation, and that is what is coming back upon them at this time. They are condemned by their own thoughts, by their own motives, their own rules and regulations. The very things they tried to use to accuse Jesus is now being used to accuse them. Mark's gospel tells us that the scribes and Pharisees they kept silent. They were trapped. They could say nothing. They could not say a single word without incriminating themselves. Well, even though the scribes and Pharisees didn't have anything else to say, Jesus wasn't finished. Let's read our next verse to see what Jesus had to say. Verse 10. And when he had looked around at them all, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. We're told that Jesus looked around at them all in this... In the opening here of verse 10, interestingly, Mark's gospel gives us more information about this look that Jesus gave and how his observations impacted him emotionally. Mark's account says that when Jesus looked around at them, he did so with anger. And then it also says that he, was, he looked at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Jesus looked around at all the scribes, the Pharisees. He was filled with anger over their hard hearts, but at the same time, he was grieved by their hard hearts. Jesus was angry at them, for they kept silent. They would not confess their own sin. They would not acknowledge that their evil attempt was wrong, not just for on the Sabbath, but upon any day. Jesus asked if it was lawful to do evil. The obvious answer is no. (laughs) That's not lawful. (laughs) But that is exactly what they were doing. They were plotting evil against Jesus, and their hypocrisy caused anger to come forth in the heart of the Lord. Anger isn't, you know, always a sinful thing. We think of it as very bad, okay, uh, oftentimes. But the Scriptures actually teach us that we can be angry and still not sin. Ephesians 4.26, Psalms 4.4, both talk about that. But it is a very fine line. One many people find difficult to navigate. A justifiable anger is something along the lines of the way you may feel towards great injustices in the world. We can be angry at the enemy for the way he exploits people and still not be in sin. Look at today's world, okay? There are things happening in today's world that we can be angry about and still not be in sin. We can look around and say evil is present, evil is running rampant, and we can have what we refer to as a righteous indignation and still not be in sin. Well, along with anger, Jesus felt grief. He was grieved over the hard hearts. Jesus, despite their ill intentions, despite their desire to trap him, still had compassion towards these Pharisees he wanted to see them repent. He offered them a perfect opportunity to respond to him, to confess their sin, but they would not. Instead, they just stood there silent, not saying a word. And he was grieved that they would not respond to him. Well, Jesus commanded the man with the withered hand to stretch it out, the man responded in faith. He attempted to do something that was impossible for him to do, and God brought about a miracle, providing a complete healing upon him. Now, This man, he could have responded in one of two ways. One, he could have argued with Jesus and told him that he can't stretch out his hand and tell him all the reasons why he can't stretch out his hand and tell him how many times he's tried in the past and failed to stretch out his hand. Or two, he can obey Jesus and stretch out his hand as Jesus commanded And there's a lesson to be learned here for sure. When God's word comes to us and shows us the way in which we should respond, we can either be obedient and see God do something amazing, or we can be disobedient and list off all the reasons why God is wrong about us and about the situation that we're in. The word of God says, husbands, love your wives. Ephesians chapter five, verse 25. And some would say, oh, but you don't know about my wife and all the heartache that she brings. She's, she's downright unlovable at times. I, none of you guys would say that, but you know maybe other people would say that, right? Okay? And those people, they won't love their wife and they'll be disobedient and they won't experience the loving touch of the father. But those who say, Lord, I'm gonna love my wife no matter what because that's what your word tells me to do. I'm going to be obedient to your word and trust that you will do something incredible. It is that person that's going to see God move and that person that's going to experience God's blessings and touch upon their marriage. The word of God says, wives, submit to your husbands. And again, you can argue with God, And you can tell him all the reasons that your husband doesn't deserve that kind of treatment, how he hasn't earned enough respect for you to be willing to submit yourself to him, and you'll not see God move in your marriage. Or you can simply be obedient to God's word and trust that in his timing, he's going to work out something incredible as you are obedient to him. You know, I love what uh, John Corson wrote in his commentary. John Corson's a pastor, a uh, Bible commentator. Uh, he had this to, to write uh, in his commentary. He says this. Once we quit saying why we can't, once we quit arguing with the word and saying it's not that easy, once we quit saying I'm an exception to the rule, and instead we say, Lord... If you say it, I'll do it, period. He meets us there and miracles begin to take place. You see, the choice is ours. Will we be obedient to God's word or not? Will we trust God at his word and yield ourselves to the work of his spirit in our life? Or will we continue to resist the spirit and disobey. God's desire for us is to be obedient to his word and to trust in his work. This man with the withered hand, he didn't give excuses. He didn't talk about how difficult it would be for him to stretch out his hand, how it was impossible for him to do what Jesus asked him to do. He simply responded in faith and did as Jesus directed him, and God did a work of restoration in his hand, and no doubt in his life as well. Let's take a look at our final verse. We'll wrap this up. Verse 11 says, but they were filled with rage, and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This verse is really hard to fathom. Look how hard these hearts had become, how blinded they had come to their own sin. Matthew and Mark's parallel account both state how the Pharisees left that place and they plotted how they might destroy Jesus. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to try and trap Jesus into breaking the Sabbath as they interpreted it by making him heal a man of a physical ailment because they wanted to find a way to accuse him. And yet, here they are plotting to kill a man on the Sabbath. And they don't find anything wrong with that. That's amazing (laughs) how they could be so intent on trying to trap someone into doing something, a good thing, that they might accuse them of breaking the law, and yet the whole entire time they're planning to murder someone on the Sabbath. It makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Well, ultimately, we know God would even use these evil desires to bring about his good. As Jesus Christ would be sent to the cross to pay the price for all of our sins. And though we may be frustrated and upset at these Pharisees' hard hearts and their constant attacking and plotting against our Lord, we know the Lord sees and knows all things and he will work all things for his good. He does the same in our lives today as well. You see, what the enemy means for evil, God churns to good. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20 states, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. We know Romans 8, 28. We know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Listen, church family, God is at work. He can turn the attacks of the enemy into opportunities for His glory, His faithfulness to be revealed. God is at work and His work is a good work. It ain't one that will bring honor and glory to him. And so, my exhortation, my encouragement for us all this morning is this. Trust the Lord. Obey his word and watch him do amazing things. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word. Lord, that as we are yielded to your word, Lord, as you command us through your word, we can go forth in the strength and power that your spirit provides and do what may be considered impossible, Lord. Lord, to represent you well, to live for you, to live a life that brings honor and glory to you. And Lord, I pray that we would be those that honor you in our life, not just on Uh, the sabbath not just on sunday not just on wednesday night but each and every day lord that we would meet with you and that we would represent you well lord that we would be able to give a an answer to those who may ask us why we live the way that we live our life that we might be able to take them to the scriptures because we know your word and we base our life upon your word so lord i just ask Lead us, guide us, Lord. I pray that we would trust in You, that we would obey Your Word, and that we would see amazing things come to pass. I lift up all these, Your children, asking Your blessings upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.